Now, our scripture reading, as I said, comes from the book of Revelation. We're going to read uh, Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to look at the letter to the church at Pergamum. And that will be found in Revelation 2, starting at verse 12. So let's begin by reading the word and uh, join me with your own devices, your own Bibles, as I read the letter to the church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this letter of, just like all the others, is just overflowing with truth and wisdom. And it's truth for the church that was, the church that is, and the church that will be. In other words, it's about a real place called Pergamum and a real church that existed there. But it's also about Pergamum Christians who have existed since then and who will no doubt exist in the future until Christ returns. And so we want to ask ourselves if we are Pergamum Christians. And if so, what should we be doing differently? Now, what we learned from reading about the uh, church at Ephesus was that churches receive marks like, like Pergamum and Ephesus receive Jesus's uh, commendation for, for upholding certain rules faithfully. And, and the rules aren't the thing as much as the standard behind them or the, the righteousness of the person behind the behavior. And we find that he also has certain things he would like for them to improve on. It is, for all intents and purposes, like a teacher's report card. It shows you where you're doing very well. It shows you where there's room for improvement. And then there's usually a place with some recommendations for improvement. And uh, in this regard, Pergamum scored pretty well, but they had a similar problem to the church at Ephesus. And that is a certain problem of what they did not tolerate and how they went about not tolerating it and what they did tolerate and how they went about tolerating it. So if we could think of it in these terms, it might be that the church at Ephesus was particularly conservative. And a very conservative church will naturally uphold certain standards and stick to them religiously, you know, faithfully, like, and, and to a fault even, to the point of being legalistic. Um, 
It's remarkable since we've been running an ad campaign where I'm simply offering to pray for people and there's no strings attached. There have been at least one or two people who responded to the ad in order to tell me what's wrong with my church and me. Um, and they didn't ask any questions before they made their statement of condemnation. As far as they were concerned, it's a fact. See, there's people out there like that, right? They love Jesus. And yet they are, they are holding such a narrow standard of what they consider pure righteous Christianity that they have no room for anyone else. And so they actually do things that could be considered hostile in the name of righteousness. And, and so you have that kind of picture with Ephesus, but then you have a uh, entirely different thing with Pergamum because they're more, we'll say, liberal in this case, in that they, uh, they teach the right things, they, they lead people to Christ in the proper way, and they teach the right Christ, but then they, they're much more loose about their standards of morality. And, and uh, they're, they're, uh, they're willing to be a little too worldly, even while they're doing church. Uh, even while they're operating in the name of Jesus Christ. And, you know, he, he commands us to be not of this world anymore, even though we live in this world. And so that's the difference, basically, between Ephesus and Pergamum in a nutshell. Now, the interesting thing is, is that people who are in the hyper-legalistic conservative church lack grace. And the people who are in the more relaxed, uh, liberal-minded kind of church have a danger of being uh, overly willing to accept anything and to say, well, anything goes. And the problem there is, is that it, it makes you risk changing who God is. You know, not that you can literally change who God is, but you can say, well, if God were... If God were directly involved in our church right now, he wouldn't approve, uh, he would disapprove of this and not that, it, as though we can change God's nature, as if God is changeable, or that God changes God's mind, or that God is, you know, and, and this gets into a whole metaphysical thing that, that I don't want to dwell on too much today, except to say that, that the most important thing you can remember about God is that God is wholly apart from God's creation, that God lives outside of our space and time, and therefore time isn't an issue with God, that the day he decreed that certain things were not holy and not righteous, they are still not holy and not righteous. And the day he said, you are forgiven to a sinner at a well and invite that person to receive the, the, the water of life, is still as relevant now as it ever was because outside of space and time, it happens now. That's why we say that the letters to the churches in Revelation are letters to the church that was, the church that is, and the church that will be because it's all happening from outside space and time. So keeping that in mind, we're not condemning anyone who doesn't agree about one thing or another, but what we are saying is, is that if the people in Ephesus erred in a way that Christ mentions, it was in that they were perhaps too judgmental and lacking in grace for people whose faith was weak and whose, 
whose uh, spiritual maturity was less than their own. And if there's a way that the church in Pergamum has garnered some criticism from Jesus, it's that they have been weak and been willing to tolerate things that are outside the boundaries of doctrine for the people of Christ. And so he's asking each side to find their way to the middle and to be with everyone in Christian love during that process of coming together under his reign somewhere in the middle ground. Now, Pergamum was a city that was full of temples that were dedicated to the Greeks, the Romans, and uh, to even an Egyptian god. And the chief uh, place of worship in Pergamum that, that was on the citadel was devoted to the worship of the emperor, to Caesar. And so it was really what, what, uh, uh, what Jesus calls the throne of Satan. He's basically saying the world. Um, you can think of Satan in a lot of ways, but maybe the best way to think about Satan is that everything about Satan points to indulging the flesh and willful disobedience of God. It, it has everything to do with putting human nature, human fleshly desire, and human intellect above all else and that's basically satan's realm uh to say that i have an uh, an excellent intellect as a christian is to say that god has imparted a part of god's self to humanity that is unique in all of creation and it's the intellect it's the it's the will and the act uh, the, the use of our brain and our our spirit that is made in the image of God. And, and so I don't place my intellect above God. I thank God for giving my intellect to me and informing my intellect with his Holy Spirit. And so there's a harmony there. In the same way, the people of the flesh, the people of the world system that is Satan's throne are entirely committed to the idea that humanity is superior to all things in creation, even their creator because they don't even believe there's a creator. That's why they come up with the idea that the creator didn't really create, because it's a way of disavowing any connection to the creator. And so this is what Jesus would call the throne of Satan. And what, what's really driving those people is pride. It's, it's about human superiority. It's about egocentric thinking. And the message that Jesus is giving to Pergamum is, You've done well to resist the world to a point, but you've allowed certain things to creep in. And here's how you did it. And so Jesus mentions Balak and Balaam. <clears throat> now, that's actually Jesus at the end of the relationship between God and the people of earth, uh, the end of the era, so to speak saying something about an event that occurred back at the very beginning of God's relationship with people when he created the holy people of Israel, the set-apart people of Israel. And the system that, or the, the, the reference to Balak and Balaam is a reference to how when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, they were a great threat to the various tribes and nation, city-states city that were around and uh, all of them had different responses to them. Most of them were terrified because they'd heard that these two million people are wandering in the wilderness and they have a God who's looking out for them, who's defeated the most powerful nation in the world. And uh, so they're scared. And this Moabite named Balak 
is a leader of his people and he hires Balaam or Balaam, who is a kind of sorcerer or false prophet. And he says, I want you to curse. I want you to call down a curse upon the people of Israel uh, so that we can defeat them. So he's basically asking ba uh, Balaam to, to uh, nuke them, you know, to drop a nuclear bomb on them. And, uh, and obviously he doesn't understand who the people of Israel are worshiping or how he operates, but they're about to find out because when Balaam decides to go to his uh, appointed task, he gets on his donkey and he starts heading out to a place where he's going to cast a curse upon Israel. And on the way, an angel of the Lord blocks the path. And Balaam is so deeply ingrained in his mindset and his way of viewing nature and, and, and supernatural matters. He can't see this angel, but his donkey sees it. You've heard of Balaam's ass, right? Balaam's donkey can see this uh, angel blocking their path, and, and Balaam keeps kicking the, you know, the donkey. Come on, let's go, let's go, come on, come on. And finally, the donkey turns around. Wouldn't this be cool if this ever happened to you? It turns his head around and says, would you knock it off? Seriously, would you stop kicking me? Do you not see an angel standing in my path right now, blocking the two of us from going any further? I'm trying to save you. You know, this is what the donkey says to him. Isn't that funny? And, and so eventually Balak, the leader of the Moabites, has determined that this isn't going to work. A frontal assault against the people of Israel isn't going to work. And so he doesn't give up eventually. And I encourage you to study the uh, teaching notes that are also in the email that I sent you this morning and, and available uh, elsewhere. Just let us know if you can't get them, we'll help you get them. But um, you'll find out that this, come, this, this story kind of unfolds in, in bits and pieces over a period of chapters. But, but here's the short version. Eventually, Balak and Balaam, they come up with a different plan for defeating the people of Israel. And his plan is really very simple and it's downright diabolical. Apparently Moabite women are beautiful. Uh, look at Ruth uh, from the book of Ruth and Naomi. And, and, and there's something about these Moabite women that are just, they're incredibly beautiful. And so what we find out is, is that over time, the people of Israel are corrupted from within because their men are marrying Moabite women and adopting their practices worshiping their false gods. And so Balaam is this priest of a pagan religion who has basically infiltrated the ranks of Israel through marriage and childbearing and so forth and gradually corrupted them from within. Now go back to Jesus's letter at Pergamum and you see it to Pergamum and you see that he's basically saying, you guys have done the same thing. You've let Balak and Balaam infiltrate your church and caused your church to adopt certain pagan rituals as a part of the religion of your church, as a part of the doctrine of your church. So he's basically saying, you guys have got to get this under control. You have to recognize that you are a set apart people, that you are here as the body of Christ, the church with a capital C, for the purpose of being unique. And rather than have the world infiltrate and infect your doctrinal standards and your communal orientation around Christ, you should be an infection yourselves. 
you should be contagious Christians. I know we're talking a lot about disease and sickness right now and the fear of contagious virus, but imagine if Christians were viral and we could infect people with the love of Christ, new life in Christ, and the Holy Spirit. How crazy would that be? But instead, what we find ourselves doing is allowing the world to infect the church. And we find that we're practicing all sorts of worldly things in church and calling them normal and appropriate. And Jesus calls Pergamum out for this. He calls them out because he wants them to understand that Christians should not blend pagan culture with their Christian doctrine. And remember, doctrine is the boundaries around our faith system. It's, it's what's inbounds and what's outbounds. Now, Jesus being gracious and loving and our Lord being generous in every respect has given us broad playing fields to operate within. So the boundaries are pretty broad, but there are limits and there are times when it's out of bounds. And Jesus calls Pergamum to account for this. It says you're operating outside the boundaries when you eat food sacrificed to idols with an acknowledgement that that is a way of imparting that, uh, that spiritual system into yourself. Let me put it to you this way. And, and again, Christians, ugh, the Christians are people who have a, um, my little robot vacuum just fired up. <laughs> Nathan's running to stop her. Thank you, Nathan. Well done, son. So, so Christians, imagine Christians are a, um, a unique people who have a particular devotion to Christ, and yet somehow or another they find themselves giving uh, power to some sort of pagan idea. Um, you know, witchcraft, let's say. Um, I mentioned this during the, the, uh, the Bible study or Sunday school class, but, but would a Christian play around with a Ouija board? Seems like a bad idea to me. Um, would a Christian justify certain immoral behavior based on some worldview that isn't compatible with Christian biblical doctrine? I mean, these are hard questions that we're asking in our denomination. We're asking this in our Christian conversation and, and consultation. These are very hard questions. But what Jesus is saying is, is there are times when people are knowingly violating what they know God would not approve of. In, in other words, when they eat food sacrificed to idols, it's not the food that's bad. Because we already have Paul and, and in other places of Scripture, even Peter, telling us that it's not the food that's bad, it's the spirit in which you eat the food. And let's face it, if you would take this and look at it from Pergamum's point of view, uh, remember that some of the false gods um, that were represented in the temples of Pergamum were gods of fertility. And so a Christian says, I'm a Christian, Jesus is Lord, all these other gods aren't real. The, the God who destroyed the gods of Egypt has also destroyed all the other false gods out there. The world system is corrupt and it's based on, on uh, human desire and human 
intellect and humanism basically and 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 then this christian says that all of this is true and believes that all of this is true but someone tells them if they'll eat meat that was sacrificed to uh the the goddess of of fertility and consume it a certain way you know chew it 27 times and swallow it and you know all this you know whatever they can get pregnant and have more children. I mean, what they're doing is, is that they're giving up faith in Christ and giving that portion of their faith in Christ to a false God. They're, they're, that's what their problem was when they were worshiping uh, or eating food that was given in worship to idols. It wasn't the food that was bad. It was that they knew that they weren't trusting Christ entirely. They were consciously making a decision to serve the God that that idol uh, worshiping food was designed around. So sputtered a little bit there, but I think you get where I'm going with this. So, so it's, it's all about your frame of mind. Um, and as religious leaders, and this is all of us, by the way, because see, every one of us is a Christian is also a mentor to somebody. It might be our children, our grandchildren. It might be our coworkers might be pastors and members of the congregation. Everybody, somebody's elder in the Christian journey. And that's because in the Christian world of new birth in the Holy Spirit, there are as many generations and as many uh, age definitions within the body of Christ as in the physical world. In my home, none of us are exactly the same age. I'm the oldest one in my house. My wife is the next oldest and we go down the line to the very youngest. And if that were true of us spiritually as well, then it would stand to reason that I am more capable of mentoring my wife, who's slightly younger than I am, and she is more capable of mentoring someone who's slightly younger than her, and so on. So when we think in the spiritual realm around new birth in Christ, each of us has an opportunity to lead others in faith and to be led by others in faith. And this is what we need to do in order not to be like Pergamum or Ephesus for that matter. Because if we're a Pergamum type Christian, we're letting outside influences rob us of our spiritual authority. And our spiritual authority doesn't lack grace if we exercise grace in the same Holy Spirit. Which means that I can't give you a blanket answer to the question well, is this wrong and that right? Well, there's no blanket answer, but within Scripture, there are absolute truths that can be discerned. And when the body of Christ functions under the Lordship of Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit and with the wisdom and discernment of spiritual maturity, we can make some pretty good decisions. But we have to do it apart from the world of the flesh. And this is the danger that people wandering in the wilderness have, is they get desperate. See, if Jesus isn't answering your prayer for fertility, then you might turn to the goddess of fertility and eat food sacrificed to that goddess. If the Lord keeps feeding you manna out in the wilderness and the only women around are the same women that you've known all your life in this wandering in the wilderness community and you see this exotic woman from another country who's different and more beautiful in some way that turns you on and you decide to embrace her culture and raise children with her in this anti 
uh, Israelite culture, then gradually you bring about the corruption that God was trying to weed out in order to send a perfect nation into the promise. Please hear me clearly. Jesus loves these churches or he wouldn't be writing to them. He loves these churches even though he's giving them some correction along with his commendation. He loves them and you are loved and it means that we're all imperfect and there are certain ways we're never going to have perfect righteousness until Christ restores that potentiality by destroying evil once and for all, which is all promised in Scripture. But for now, we strive for righteousness, what John Wesley called perfect love. We strive for a special kind of relationship with God that enables us to make more good decisions than bad when it comes to matters of doctrine and personal holiness. So no, I'm not saying that we're always right when we condemn certain things. That's why Ephesus Christians exist. And I'm not saying that we're always wrong when we let certain things pass, which is why some of us are Pergamum Christians. Remember that little one in the middle that we read about last week, Smyrna? Jesus didn't have anything bad to say about them, and that was because they were perfectly faithful in the midst of the oppression of the world around them. And it seems as though the only way you can get it right is to see yourself entirely through the lens of kingdom. That is to say, Christ is your king and no one else. And so when you struggle against having your devotion divided from Christ to the world, from Christ to your family, from Christ to your things, from Christ to what you're afraid of. And so for fear's sake, you, you give in to certain things. Are we not dealing with a lot of fear these days? And to be quite honest with you, last week I talked about the message of, of Smyrna being they didn't complain. You can say whatever you want about the things that are going on in certain cities that are resulting in violence and destruction and death. You can say who's behind it. You can say what's behind it. You can engage in that debate if you'd like. But what I believe is absolutely true is, is that fear makes people do dumb things. Fear causes you to panic when you need to have a clear head on your shoulders. Fear causes you to alienate people because of your perception of a threat. Fear causes you to uh, injure people because you're afraid they might hurt you. Fear causes you to say vile and offensive things that maybe aren't a natural part of your nature. Fear leads us to do ridiculous things that almost always result in pain and suffering. Fear's a good thing to have when you turn the corner in the wilderness and a bear greets you on the path. Fear's a good thing to have when you are in a life and death situation and you have to think quickly and your body has just transformed itself into a survival machine. These are gifts from God. But what happens when we think more with our feelings than with facts is we have a tendency to let fear rule our lives. People were legalistic in Ephesus because of fear. 
people were overly accepting of immoral behavior in Pergamum because of fear. One side feared that hyper-religious folks would take something away from them that they had no right to take. The other side feared that irreligious people were going to take something away from them that no one had the right to take. Both were letting fear cause them to make bad decisions. What decisions are you making these days based on fear? And what is the best remedy for fear, if not faith, in someone who has the power over all things? Our Lord, King Jesus Christ, let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts so that we might be forever changed by the truth that comes from your Holy Spirit. If I have failed in some way to communicate effectively your word, then I pray that you would erase that erroneous message from the people's minds. For your namesake, I pray. Amen. Thank you.